For AZPM, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, hear the story of Paula Bronstein, a survivor who escaped the Nazis by hiding in Holland. It saved her life, but it cost her her childhood. It's part of the AZPM Living History Project, Children of the Holocaust. And find out what Marcus Doe and the organization We Reconcile are doing to help adult children reunite with estranged fathers. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. From 1941 to 1945, Germany's Nazi regime murdered two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population. Of the six million Jews who were victims of this genocide known as the Holocaust, an estimated 1.5 million were children. Against all odds, some children managed to survive. Children of the Holocaust is AZPM's Living History Project. Project producer Laura Markowitz interviewed 19 child survivors of the Holocaust who now live in southern Arizona. This is an excerpt from the story of Paula Bronstein, who was a hidden child. Paula Gerfein Bronstein was born in Eindhoven, Holland in 1937. She has no memories of her life before the war, but from pictures, she knows that she and her parents lived in a nice home. In one photograph, her father is holding her in his arms and smiling. My memory doesn't really start until I'm four and a half. My parents dropping me off with this family. In July of 1942, she was left with strangers. And my parents are walking away and I'm crying, being told they'll be back and they'll be back. The German army had invaded Eindhoven in 1940. Every month, there were new restrictions imposed on the Dutch Jewish population. Then the Nazis started deporting Jewish people to concentration camps. Paula's parents, Solomon and Fanny Gerfein, knew that it was only a matter of time before they were taken. So they made plans to go into hiding. They found a Dutch couple willing to take Paula. Their names were Lise and Jaap Rauder. Nice, nice Dutch people. They had no children. They ran a boarding house, renting out six or seven rooms to factory workers. They told Paula to call them aunt and uncle, Tanta and Om. So, Tanta Rauder, Oma Jaap. And I was the niece. I was always told I couldn't go outside. When there were other people coming into the house that did not know anything about me, I had to go into a basement so I they wouldn't see me and not to talk or cry or anything. Paula didn't understand why. She didn't know that the Nazis were offering a bounty to Gentiles who turned in hidden Jews. She didn't know the routers were risking their own lives to hide her. The neighbors had two children, a boy and a girl, kind of my age. And in the beginning, my tante let me play with them until 
the boy, he decided to ask me some questions. How come your hair is dark? How come your eyes are not blue? Those children had blonde hair, the Dutch children. And I had no answer to that question. So when I went back to Tante to the house, I told her, she says, you can't play with them anymore. And I had no childhood at all at that time. There was no kindergarten or anything for me. They had a girl, a cleaning girl, maybe 17 or 18. And she kind of guided me and taught me some sort of reading so that I would be able to go to school afterwards. And my tante made her or asked her to take me to the Catholic Church, become involved in the church and, you know, have nothing to do with what I was supposed to be. So I became Catholic. I liked it. You know, that's all I knew. I got a rosary. I don't know if the sisters in the church knew anything about me. I did have a communion. Apparently, I got a pink dress that I remember. So that became my life. The Allies started bombing nearby factories that were making German military parts. Some of the neighbors had built themselves bomb shelters. When the plane started to come over with the bombs, that people with the two children on the other side of the house, they would not let us go into their bomb shelter. But two doors down, there was another one that had it. And somehow they let us in. And we had to be in there quite often with the bombs, the planes coming over. And I took my rosary and I prayed to God, to Jesus, you know, that they wouldn't hit us. And it didn't hit us. It did hit the house next door. One day in 1943, an SS officer showed up at the router's door. You had to take in an SS officer, had to go now and live in your house so that he would have a nice place and get food. And the Dutch people had to cater to him. So here I am supposed to be her niece, and this Nazi officer now comes in. He was a short guy, kind of blonde hair, short guy. And he's making nice to me. I'm sitting on his lap, and I don't seem to talk too much to him. If I remember, my aunt would tell me, don't say anything. I am your aunt, and your parents are... I don't remember what I'm supposed to say where my parents are because I didn't understand any of this, why I'm even there. Just thinking about it afterwards, you know, how how this could have gone wrong for me and it could have gone bad for my tante and my omiyap because what they're doing, the uh, Germans, you know, hold them just as responsible even though they are not Jewish, having anything to do to save the Jewish life, they can be sent to camps just like the Jews on the trains. So the two and a half, 
three years of the wartime goes on and on. And finally, we're starting to hear, I guess, from radios that you're not supposed to have, but they did, that the Americans or the English are going to be flying very close to the town, Eindhoven. We all went upstairs to the attic and looked out the window and saw the planes and the parachutes coming down. And it was a happy, happy day. Eindhoven was liberated on September 20th, 1944. This Nazi now has to leave. And that's when I kind of became aware of why I was with these people, Tante Reiter and Omiya. She and I are walking him to the front door, like a guest, you know. <laughs> my Tante is standing to my right. He's standing outside of the front door. Then he looks at me, and that I remember like clearly. He points his finger right at me, and he says, now, Paula, you can go free. What does that mean? You know, so afterwards, I'm finding out, well, you are Jewish, and the Germans were catching Jews, and that's why you're here until your parents come back to pick you up. Paula's parents waited a few months until all of Holland was liberated. They wanted to make sure the Germans wouldn't take back the city. When the Gerfine family finally was reunited, Paula was seven and a half years old. I didn't want to go with them. She hadn't seen or heard from them in three years. She said her parents seemed like strangers. Between each other, they told each other, we're never going to talk about it. So they were harboring all their feelings, what they had. And now all of a sudden they had a child who's older and they don't know how to deal. Love didn't come out. So they were broken. Paula resented them for physically abandoning her during the war and emotionally abandoning her after. She says that feeling has never left her. My parents never asked me anything. How was your life? What do you, what, what happened? How, tell, talk to me? Never. The older I am getting, not knowing how much longer I'm going to be here, um, it hurts. Paula's parents lost their home and all their possessions during the Holocaust and they never recovered. They struggled in poverty. Paula's brother was born in 1948. Her sister was born 18 months later. With her parents' attention focused on her siblings, Paula felt like even more of an outsider. She missed the routers and visited them whenever she could. I would walk to her house, their house. And of course, when, I'm, when we came to America, I wrote, we wrote letters. She was 15 when they moved to California. They lived in a trailer, but it was too small for a family of five. Where's Paula going to sleep? Oh, no room for Paula. She ended up moving in with her uncle and his wife. Paula finished high school, and at age 18, she got married. 
she tried to put the past behind her. My husband is watching on TV a lot of these war movies, and I see all this German, this Hitler guy. I, I, I would tell him, I can't watch, so I'm walking out of the room. And I didn't start talking about it until I'm in my 50s. And the group that I got involved in, the Child Survivors Group in Los Angeles, met a lot of Dutch people also who had gone through similar, which helped me tremendously. It's for me so emotional to have happened. And then again, luck for them and for me. She is lucky to be alive. 70% of Jews in the Netherlands perished in the Holocaust. Many of the survivors were saved by people like the Routers, people who recognized the humanity in others and felt obligated to act in the face of injustice and brutality. These courageous individuals came from all faiths and all walks of life. Jewish people call them the righteous among the nations or righteous Gentiles. Today, Paula Bronstein wishes Yap and Lise Router had been honored as righteous Gentiles. She wishes she could say thank you. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz. Full interviews from the Children of the Holocaust web series will be released each week starting on April 5th. The full interview with Paula Bronstein will be available at azpm.org on May 17th. Fatherlessness is a domestic situation that is often the cause of many negative outcomes for families and individuals. These estranged relationships can cause lifelong rifts that often expand and threaten the mental and emotional well-being of everyone involved. In response to what he was seeing in the communities around him, and based on his own volatile life experience, Marcus Doe spent years learning about the complexities that surround the issue of fatherlessness. Doe is now the founder and CEO of We Reconcile, a nonprofit dedicated to helping reunite absent fathers with their children. Our mission statement is to repair and prevent uh, fatherlessness by bringing separated adult children and their fathers together uh, through a healing journey of forgiveness and reconciliation in order to disrupt the generational cycle of emotional, social, and relational discord that exists. Give me some of your impressions of fatherlessness as a concept, what that does to a family and what that does to a young man who's growing and developing. It seems as though that has become the norm uh, to an extent where fathers are missing. I lost my dad when I was uh, 11 years old. But when I arrived in the States, I sat with friends, the friends that I made in high school, uh, most of whom didn't have their dads. And I recognized that they didn't, not only did they not have their dads, but they were antagonistic towards their fathers. And it was a hurt. There was a confusion there. There was just an inability to, to kind of reconcile what was happening. Why didn't their fathers uh, want them was the kind of overarching question. I'm so sorry to hear about the tragedy of, of what happened to your family in Liberia and losing your father. But when you look back at the relationship that you were able to have with him, what stands out to you? And now, even as a father yourself, you know, what, what do you think that you took from that too brief relationship? My father uh, was my hero. 
he was very sensitive, uh, very, I think, educationally or academically wanted us to do the best we could. Uh, my father had a very stressful job, but he didn't uh, let that stand between him and his kids. There were six of us. He was a great role model. He took us to things to expose us to the world. Uh, when foreign ships would come into Liberia, he would take us to see them, uh, different leaders, different things. He, he exposed me to Martin Luther King, Jesse Owens, Abraham Lincoln, uh, just several other international things. My father loved to read Latin. So he was a great father, and, and losing him was like losing the gravity in my world. And at the same time, you came to the United States. Is that right? Yes, I came to the United States as a refugee when I was 13 years old. Uh, two years after my father was killed in civil war. So making this incredible transition in your life and not having your father there, I like what you said about gravity. That makes a lot of sense. Yes. I think mothers in this country, everywhere in the world, do a wonderful job of keeping loving and nurturing their children. But it's a role that a father plays that when that role is absent, especially a biological father, it can set a, a child with a lot of questions in a trajectory that we see in our society, uh, negative social outcomes can mostly be traced back to fatherlessness in our culture. On behalf of, of We Reconcile, you told me that you were at a public event recently and that you were recruiting that day looking for fathers who wanted to take part in the We Reconcile Families program. So I'd like to know what that's like when you're um, you know, at, a, at an event, you're sitting there at the table, you're welcoming people to come over and talk about perhaps one of the most difficult subjects that they could possibly talk about in their lives. Can you give us some idea of how some of those encounters might go when you meet a father who wants to reconcile or is just curious about the program? Whenever I talk to a father who is interested in applying for the program or who has, has been separated or estranged from their children, and I start to explain it. At first, there is a sense of, can I trust this man? Can I trust this program? Well, here's what we do. We help reestablish uh, connections between fatherless adults and their fathers. We do this through a four-module process. The first module helps define the family history, the triggers and trauma that people have gone through being separated as, as family members. We do that individually with clinical counselors. So the father meets with a clinical counselor and the adult child meets with a clinical counselor. And as they walk through that process, they're able to begin to anticipate what it would look like to reestablish a connection. A word you use to describe that stage is reimagine. Yes. And that really speaks to me because we are so comprised of the stories that we tell ourselves. And if we look back at a childhood incident or childhood trauma, that can become a myth of its own creation in a way over the years. And so when you're talking about adult children, they may be living with uh, negative feelings surrounding an event that may not even be remembered by the father. Yeah. And so reimagining how we go about restructuring this internal mythology we build for ourselves is fascinating to me. As they sit with a counselor, yeah, what does it look like? What can it look like to see my dad in a different light or for him to hear his side of the story or for him to, to reach out and reconnect with me? And, and as an adult, I'm sure I'm able to handle the, con the, the conversation to help them develop an emotional awareness of the possibility 
of a relationship with their fathers again. And that's deep and that's that's hard. And there's a lot of hurt there. But we have counselors who are willing to walk through that healing journey in order to get them prepared to meet each other. I think about the impacts that a bad relationship or a estranged relationship between an adult and their father, how that can translate into something that undercuts their confidence all the time at every stage. But then I also look at fathers who may now be middle-aged. What has it done to their confidence? The tendency is to blame the father, but it maybe the estrangement wasn't the father's fault, right? There could be many factors that could have played into that. There are many, many factors that can play into that. And, and it does feel like like an elephant in the room of people's lives that they haven't dealt with, they want to deal with, but they don't have a path to get to it. I'll tell you a story. Uh, in the summer of 2020, one of my great friends, we've been friends for 15 years, and I didn't know this about him. I was at home. We were all at home. And I asked him, can we take a walk? And I told him about this program that I was thinking of starting. And he, he just stopped me in the middle of talking. He said, I'm one of those children. My dad walked away 37 years ago, and what you're going to do is going to turn over a lot of emotional turmoil in people's lives. But he was actually very sympathetic towards his father. He said, you know, I don't know my dad. I don't know his story. I don't know the side of it. I don't want anything from him. I just want to get to know the guy and understand his his perspective, why he left. I, he said he did have some anger towards his father, and he was able to actually, didn't wait for my program to get started, bought a ticket and flew across the country, met his father, and sat across from him in a, in a park and, and recorded the conversation as he and his father went through 37 years of being apart. And that conversation that he sent me with his father's permission just made me melt. It, it was exactly what I, I saw the program evolving into kind of over the period of time that we will have people in the program, whether the father steps up and admits wrongdoing and the son or daughter is able to come alongside of them and they decide to reimagine, like I said, a new path forward. It's a very emotional story and it's a very emotional thing that we're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Well, let's skip ahead to to stage two, uh, reconciliation. And you refer to this uh, as the mountain climb part. The most interesting part of this, I think, involves doing a retreat yeah. with the participants. And you talk about conversations with a therapist over four days. Yeah. Um, doing four days of conversation with a therapist, that, uh, that, that seems like a really big ask, even of people who might have, a, say, an uninterrupted relationship with their father. This is the most exciting part of the whole thing. Uh, we, at, at that point, before they go on a four-day uh, retreat, they have spent six months journaling and imagining the conversation and reconciliation. And we've gotten to the point where they've developed emotional awareness of the possibility of a relationship. And when we get them to that as away from society for four days and their counselors are with them, they're familiar with the counselor, and not only do they have those conversations, but they're also, we've designed that week or that four days where they're doing things side by side. And we know that men tend to be more conversational when they're engaged in something with their hands. So there are art projects, there are, there are sports if they want to do that. There are different things or hikes and different activities that they're doing in the days that they're there, but they're able to have these conversations um, in the evenings with, with the counselor and walk through stage by stage. They've been journaling, possibly writing each other letters. So this is not the first kind of face-to-face -face encounter. I have a friend who's a professor 
um, adjunct professor in at the University of Denver, and he he specializes in doing healing trauma through West African drumming. And he is going to facilitate some of those sessions. By the end of that week, they will be able to communicate using those drums. And that's beautiful. And then let's quickly touch on the last two steps in the four-step process that uh, We Reconcile Families offers. And that's renew and redefine. So in the renew portion, they have returned home uh, from the retreat. And at this point, it switches from being individual counseling to counseling together once or twice a month, depending on the regularity that they're able to do. And they're ho- we're hoping to teach them skills and communications, uh, conflict management, and communicating their thoughts and feelings about each other in a way that is meaningful so that each person hears what is clearly said and is able to re reword what the other person has said, um, we give them tools at this point to rebuild their relationship. They may spend time by themselves together um, understanding what it's like to have you back in my life to whatever extent I want to have you back in my life. They get to, they get to that point. Um, I'm drifting into the redefine at this point. They get to the point where they're, they're thinking through, hey, is my father just going to come for Thanksgiving and I'm just going to call him on Father's Day and that's as far as our relationship is going to go? Or are we going to go to ball games together? Is he going to come and meet perhaps his grandkids? Or what is that relationship going to look like? They help determine that. They redefine what that relationship is going to look like. Because I, I think that at, at that point in life, when you're a father, maybe you're 60, 70, you, you, you're starting to figure out, I don't have that many more years life. I want to invest into into my children that didn't have the chance to do that for years and years. So I think the anticipation of that is also, is on the dad. There's a feeling of, oh man, I've missed out on so many things. Can I, can I give away some wisdom here and there to my newly redefined relationship? A lot of people hearing you define this program will go, well, hey, that sounds great. And if I had an infinite amount of money, this might be something that I could engage with. But there's no way that this is going to be affordable to me. But We Reconcile, we haven't mentioned this yet, is a nonprofit organization. We Reconcile is a nonprofit in the state of Arizona, and we will pay for your counseling and the travel to the retreat and take care of your meals and and meetings and things like that. We want to we want to remove every barrier uh, that that will hamper you in order that you can reconcile with your with your son or daughter because I think society is better uh, when when families are reconciled. I spoke with Marcus Stowe. He's the founder and CEO of We Reconcile. They're available online at wereconcilefamilies.org. There's also links and more information, including video of a TED Talk given by Marcus Stowe that are posted now on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show is a production of AZPM. The news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.